0: Hello, this is episode 78 of the Traveling Image Makers Podcast with your hosts Ugo Chay and Ralph Velasco. This week we have an interview that Ralph recorded while on the road with Jim Klein. Jim is a documentary and travel photographer based in San Diego, California and also a tour leader. This episode is quite long, uh, but it's uh, packed full of uh, practical information for travel photographers and it's mostly centered about uh, Jim's experiences while traveling Peru. Uh, So I'm sure you will all appreciate it and if you uh, love this interview and all the others that we publish, then please uh, leave us a review on iTunes uh, you can just go to our website at ttim.photo forward slash iTunes for that. Uh, you can also find all the links and show notes for this episode at ttim.photo forward slash 78. Now, before passing the microphone over to Ralph, I would just like to remind you that you can find everything about me online at my website, ucphoto.me. And as about Ralph, uh, his main website is photoenrichment.com. And you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at PhotoEnrichment. And now enjoy our conversation with Jim Klein.
1: So I'd like to welcome my guest and friend, Jim Klein, who is coming to us from San Diego, where his business, Jim Klein Photo Tours, is based. Although Jim is known for his expertise photographing all over Latin America, I've asked him to specifically discuss Peru and some other
2: destinations. Welcome to the show, Jim. Well, thanks, Ralph. Um, I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to, looking forward to it. Right. So, why don't we get right
1: into it. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the steps that led you to uh, become a travel photographer and uh, starting your company, Jim Klein Photo Tours.
2: Okay, well, it was a, uh, I guess you could say it was a a bit of a winding road. You know, I went to uh, college and got my business degree and and emphasized accounting, and I worked as an accountant for a while. And then I ended up working in tourism in Hawaii and eventually a customer service for an airline company for several years, and then on, on to a sales job in real estate. But I think all of that, particularly, came into play in running a business uh, for the photo tours. Meanwhile, I my passion in life was to travel, and I started traveling to the developing world, especially Asia, and down into Latin America. And I just really fell in love with with uh, you know the people in those countries and seeing how they had so much less than us, but how how they lived and how happy they were actually. And so I started. Uh, Specializing more and more in going down into Mexico and then farther into Latin America. And so I decided as I got more and more into photography and I started realizing I really wanted to somehow make a go of it in the world of ph- travel photography. And I decided that I would specialize in Latin America because it seemed like a lot of travel photographers were going all around the world. And I uh, didn't see that nearly as much in Latin America. And I was finding what I thought was just great stories to tell and great photography so uh yeah the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> so uh
1: it sounds like you're probably one of the few photographers who uh, actually has a business background uh and uh there's uh, you know obviously this is a business and so you get a lot of people that want to become travel photographers and they don't
2: realize how important uh, the business aspect is would you agree Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the the business part is just as important as the photography part. I mean, we'd like to think that it's just all the very, very best photographers that will rise to the top and have successful businesses, but it's not like that. I think, in many cases, if you had to say one or the other, you know, the people that are the great self promoters and everything are good, and as far as getting their name out there as photographers and in my case it was more of the business side of things for running a, a business like a photo tour company is not just getting out and shooting it's there's a lot involved in making it all work and there's a lot of competition as well as you know yeah, and the uh, I think the
1: business part of it is is probably a good eighty to ninety percent of what we do, and uh, you know
2: the, the the fun travel part is ten to twenty percent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And travel used to be so much fun until you when you have when you have to do it, and you have so many things to take care of, and it. You know, I have to admit, I don't. I still enjoy travel, but it's not quite the same when it's you know to make a living. That's for sure. Yeah, well, I'm going to
1: get into that in a little bit. Ask you about uh, that kind of things. but uh, before we get there, uh, mm-hmm. you know, tell me what motivates you as a travel photographer.
2: Well, as a, I think um, as a travel photographer, I was originally motivated. You know, as I said, when I traveled to the developing world, that's really my passion. And especially the people, the cultures. And, uh, you know, when I saw these people and how beautiful they were and how with so little they could do so much and, and they lived, you know, they seemed happier than people in our country for some reason. and And so I guess my motivation was to somehow portray that kind of beauty and dignity of these people and and i wanted to originally i mean i wanted to just bring back pictures to show all my friends who don't travel and and uh, that that motivation is really what's continued is i always want to portray and show you know these people in these countries and and the whole country as a whole as well of course
1: so how long have you been uh actually had your company and been leading trips
2: um, I started leading trips, um, 2003. Uh, so it's been, you know, 13 years going on 14 now. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Were you shooting film back then? Yeah, absolutely. So I started in film and that's something that was interesting because that was right at the start of the digital revolution. You know, I had a small digital camera I was experimenting with, but I was still shooting my SLR with film and, uh, so my, my timing was perfect to get into the business of leading groups on on photo trips because there was a revolution happening with photography, that a, a boom in photography and interest, and the baby boomers were getting to retirement age and getting back into photography and starting the whole digital revolution was happening, and suddenly there was a big market. I wasn't planning; I didn't plan ahead of time to start a tour, photo tour business. That just Evolved as I was trying to be a travel photography, and I saw that there was there were a lot of people that wanted to go with me when I started offering to, to bring people places that I knew well you know.
1: so maybe you've answered this question to an extent just now, but uh, how would you say that your job has changed over those thirteen
2: or fourteen years yeah well originally I mean I, I thought I was going to be a travel photographer that would sell I would make my living from selling my photography you know to stock agencies and all the different publications and also to get photo assignments and lead them or go on them and take pictures and right away that was as digital began they started paying less and less for photography and assignments were paying less and meanwhile i when i started my first couple of trips i saw that everybody wanted to go places and take pictures like i was and so that it changed a lot in the beginning. I was just thinking it was more of a way to get out there and get my own shots and and pay the way, sort of. But it, I suddenly saw that if I do a really good job, people would come back, and so the business has changed in the sense that we do we work just harder and harder and harder to give the best possible experience because there's more and more competition. And yeah, so that that's the story. Right.
1: Now, if you weren't a travel
2: photographer, what else do you think you might be doing? Uh, that's a good question. I, <laughs> you know, because I, as I mentioned in my very opening, I sort of changed around in my professions. You know, I never had what you would really call a career, I guess. And I think I always felt like I would be an entrepreneur of some sort. And if I wasn't doing travel photography, to be honest, I'm not sure what if I would be doing another kind of photography because – I just don't feel that much inspiration for photography as far as if I was doing weddings or commercial photography or something I I almost think I might have found a different kind of uh business to own or something you know I mean I like photography but I especially what my passion is really getting out there and telling the stories of the places I go so yeah.
1: I mean that it, it sounds uh, it sounds like we um, like I mentioned that we have a, a fairly similar background because I come from a business background I've got an MBA in international business and I've owned pretty much owned my own businesses in one form or another you know all my all my my life and I never really did have a career and I tried quite a few different different uh, things from selling real estate to owning a couple restaurants and I was a director of marketing for a division of a Fortune 500 company there in San Diego, actually. And uh, so kind of bouncing all over the place. And I always say that it, uh, it only took me 45 years to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But uh, most people don't. So I guess I'm lucky
2: in that sense. Yeah, that was about the same with me <laughs> in my 40s. <laughs> in my 40s, I figured it out. Yeah, well,
1: most people don't. So we're, we're very lucky yeah um you know, there's a segment that i call i remember when and uh do you have any uh any funny or interesting or even scary stories from the road that you can tell us uh
2: yeah you know i uh, there have been a lot of course um uh, it's funny i actually mentioning that it brings to mind i One uh, incident that occurred, and actually in Peru, since you told me that we would be talking about Peru especially. And um, I was actually there, not on one of my my tours I lead, but I was working, doing a photo assignment for uh, NGO Freedom from Hunger. And we'd been just driving around, you know, they work you hard because I get paid a day rate. So that means you're going from six a.m. to six p.m. or eight p.m. every day, and just just going and going. And finally, at the end of one day, we were driving back to the city we were staying in, and we had just been shooting all these people, getting all their assistance from these all these women, getting assistance from Freedom from Hunger. You know, they do a wonderful job. And we thought we were coming by a very scenic area near Lake Titicaca. And the guy from that came with the agency from up in California down there said, "Well, we'd like to get some, just some setup, a few scenery shots and setup shots to use as little backgrounds." And so we came around a bend in the road, and there was a a herd of sheep down there with a woman in the traditional Lake Titicaca kind of dress with the bowler hat and everything, uh, herding the sheep with a cane. And it was down the slope, so I I said, okay, I'll run down there and get some shots of her herding the sheep. And I ran down there and left the others in the car talking, and I was quite a distance from her, and she had the sheep, and I was just taking some shots from kind of far away, and... She started sort of walking toward me, and as she was getting closer, I, I wanted to be respectful you know I've photographed the people in Peru for years and years, and I understand that they're usually not too concerned about it, but they always want you to give them a small tip it's just it's sort of like a union there in some countries I, I prefer not to try to give money, but there it's just the way it is and so uh, as she got closer and she didn't look too happy, I put my camera down to show her that i was I was being respectful and I started to tell her. I started to reach into my pocket and say, here, I'll give you a couple stoles." you know. Uh, for, thank you for the – I took some pictures, even though she was quite far away. And she started coming closer and closer with her cane, and she reaches in with her other hand into the pocket, her front pocket of her dress, and pulls out the whip she was using for the sheep and starts walking towards me. Now she's about 20 feet away, and she starts whipping the whip towards me. Oh, my God. And she started moving pretty fast for – you know, she was probably 75, 80 years old. <laughs> And I, and meanwhile, I had this kind of heavy camera bag. I just grabbed my whole camera bag because we were in the car, and it was a spur of the moment thing. And I had my camera and my camera bag, and nothing was attached. And just for a second, I thought, "Oh man, I'm going to get whipped." And uh, but then I realized, well, you know, I can move faster than she can still. But I was so I was running away with her chasing me with a whip. I never had a chance to even try to explain to her that I, you know, was just shooting from far away, and I'll be I'll be happy to give her a little tip for. For that, but uh, she had an ordinary attitude, and my just dis- my biggest disappointment was when I ran I had to scramble up the slope up to the car, and the others in the group, the representatives from the local organization, the people that had come to interview the people from Mexico City, all this whole group, they were in the car, and I thought they would just be roaring and laughter, but none, none of them had seen it because they were all deep in conversation about their interviews, and so nobody saw it. it was never never recorded <laughs> anyways. <laughs> So that one was kind of funny. And then otherwise, you know, I've had funny incidents all over. I mean, it's endless, I guess. Well, you thought that you could run away from her
1: and outrun her, but uh, with that whip going at the speed of sound, that's kind of difficult to outrun. That's funny.
2: Yeah, yeah. And she was, even though she was old and she had a cane, I mean, those people are so used to the altitude and the terrain, you know, they move pretty well. So, (laughs) (laughs) but, and meanwhile, in Peru, you know, I've had, I was, also, thinking back, and we've had – it's just funny. We've never had anything really bad happen, but we've had – I think as part of leading the trips that um, maybe you could say separates the men from the boys, so to speak, too, is I thought about it. We've had incidents with boat trips, with buses being stuck in the mud on a way out of the, in the middle of nowhere, our bus, um, our plane being diverted to a different city because Cusco was fogged in. Uh, Our train was stuck on the tracks for a couple hours and throwing off your whole schedule. And so it's always moments like that that at first I just sort of get all stressed. And then I kind of kick back and say, well, you know, the people always understand. And none of of the situations were really any real danger other than just complete major inconveniences. But, yeah, it's kind of endless, I guess, the stories. I'm sure you've had those too.
1: Yeah, I mean, that certainly goes – hand in glove with travel is I yeah exactly and stuff it's just all part of it and
2: right. yeah and I
1: found that uh that my clients uh, and our clients uh because i, I do lead trips for you um, are are very understanding I mean they're very well traveled people so they know that this goes on and that uh right we're do our best to try to minimize these occurrences but that we only have so
2: much control over
1: exactly anything. <laughs>
2: yeah and okay. the, usually it's me that's the most uh exactly. maybe right yeah. initially kind yeah. of stressed because i know it's thrown off my schedule i've yeah. carefully planned you know yeah and there are other people who are usually they're you know, like you say they're good travelers and they understand and then i just relax go okay we're just going to figure out plan b and make the best of the day once things get straightened out so, yeah and it's always a good story to tell later exactly yeah. that's yeah. why i tell them yeah i always tell them yeah you'll be laughing about this later yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, I know that you go back to a lot of places over and over again, sometimes a couple times a year. But uh, as a travel photographer, what are you doing to maintain your creativity and to keep things
2: fresh for you and your clients? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I ask myself that question because I do go back quite a bit to my same. You know, I have places I go in in Latin America. That's my specialty, um, and one thing, I guess, to keep it fresh is I always find on almost every trip, you know, I find new things, hopefully, and I'm always trying to keep my ears open and keep talking to people. Because also, you know, inevitably, in each area, you're going to slowly lose certain, you know, if it's a photo opportunity somewhere, and they suddenly build, they tear down the church, or, or they build a big new hotel right in front of you know, blocking the light or I mean, endless things happen that you lose one of your favorite photo shoots with, with progress, you know? Uh, but so I've always, but I'm always finding, I'm finding new ideas. And even if it's just new angles on certain photo shoots and even, you know, when we do our image share with all of our people and, and I see what people come up with and I go, Oh yeah, that he went around the other side and got something good. So I'm going to go out and check that other side of that place next time too and I guess it's just to try to keep it fresh and that's partly why I go on a, on scouting trips even places I know sometimes between the actual tours just to go and maybe find one or two new things to keep ahead of the curve so to speak with as things change you know so that for me that works no that makes a lot of sense um you're always know, trying to find
1: new angles on things and are are you do you, I don't know how often you change gear, but do you find that sometimes you come back with a new camera or a different lens or something that might give
2: you a different perspective on a place? Yeah. Um, I think of, like, not so much with gear. I'm not a real techie, and I, I like using my same gear and just knowing it really well. But, like, I can think, for example, in Oaxaca, we go for Day of the Dead, and It's a lot of... That's the celebrations that take place, you know, largely at nighttime in the cemeteries. You know, they're they're celebrations. It's not somber or anything, but we're shooting at night. And so I have... It's almost like a little workshop I do about night shooting. But... um, as the newer SLR and all the cameras have gotten so much better with their, the results you get from higher ISOs, it really changed everything I do as far as we used to have tripods all the time. And and it was a pain, you know, to try to set up tripods in the dark. And, and so I realized, Hey, you know, we just got to crank up the ISOs and, and, uh, you know, people still have the choice and some people use tripods, but you can do a lot of different things, uh, you know, in the dark that you didn't used to be able to do. That's for sure. That's, that's, one example, yeah.
1: So you could still get some nice results even at those high
2: ISOs with today's gear. Yeah, I find yeah the newer that's a, that's an argument just to get a newer generation camera. For the most part, is just that they keep getting better and better. If you're, cause for me, it's not just something like Day of the Dead that's extreme, a uh, lots of dark shooting, but just going you know all travel photography, you know going inside of places, you get really nice light that comes through hallways and doorways, and. I mean, some of my favorite photography is indoors, really, and, you know, a lot of people don't think of that, but now with with the higher ISO, you can go to higher ISOs and, and really get nice results.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm definitely not a gearhead myself. I tend to work with the same gear for many years, uh, but I did just move from an SLR to a uh, micro four-thirds system, which uh, I... Swore I'd never do, but uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And uh, certainly the the lightweight and the compact size, and you know, it's not uh, real intimidating to the to the subject. And the um, exact can blend in pretty well. And 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 you know, they're they've got all the megapixels and the high ISOs and everything. So it's uh, it's a pretty it's a it's a new way of looking at things. So, uh, but yeah. it's, but it's taken some getting used to. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, I would agree. You know, I got my first micro four thirds, I think it was in 2010, because I remember using it in Cuba in 2011. But I but at that time, they definitely didn't have as, as good of a performance at higher ISOs. I didn't like the viewfinder system. You know, I don't have good close-up vision so i I don't use an lcd i like to look through the viewfinder and it was a you know this electronic viewfinder that just didn't work well then and anyway i I got one more a few years ago and it was getting better but i still thought i'm not quite ready because i really like to try to just go minimal equipment like you say be less intrusive and less obvious as a serious photographers who can just get up close with people. They don't really uh, react differently. So I'm looking, I'm looking at a new uh, Micro Four Thirds this summer to buy. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, I've, I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, but it, it does take some
1: getting used to. It's a new way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. You know, you broached the, the subject earlier, and I told you I was going to get back to this. But, uh, you know, as much as you travel, are you ever able to actually take a vacation? <laughs>
2: well I you know I do have a uh, family and I have one of my sons is still at home actually one is off to college but uh, so for me I don't do, go on vacations alone but I do scouting trips where I'm alone but I'm pretty busy um, but I do when I go with the family I don't usually even bring an a big boy camera I just use my iPhone and <laughs> so I really just get away from from that uh, so yeah and we'll do trips to the you know a beach resort or something my family's not really into t- hardcore travel like I am so it's more of a typical you know American kind of vacation to a resort or something or and also I a big passion of mine is skiing and my both of my boys snowboard so we do uh, ski trips and to me that's a vacation right and same thing I generally just bring the iPhone and do some videos and a few shots yeah yeah
1: well that makes a lot of sense uh you know when you got a family it kind of forces you to to do things differently because i i can't imagine they're going to want to go on a photo tour
2: (laughs) no Uh, (laughs) no or or, and even travel around and change hotels every two or three days it's not their cup of tea so (laughs) when you think back about how much we do change hotels
1: i mean every two three four nights you know i'm in a new place and that's it just becomes sort of second nature, but boy, is it a luxury to be in a place for a period of time.
0: You know, right. I don't even have exactly.
1: a home. I mean, at least you've got a home to go back to, but uh, <laughs> I kind of uh, always feel like I'm on the road. Um, you know, I guess you sort of asked answered my, my next quiz quest question was, uh, when you're in a place, are you able to actually put the camera down or are you always
2: looking for that next shot? Yeah, that's... That's a good question. I think I've slowly changed to be able to put the camera down more, especially when I don't bring it on family vacations. You know, I just let it go completely. Although when we go to Mexico, you know, to Cabo or over by Cancun area or something, I usually will bring my camera. Cause then I think I can do a little excursion out to, you know, Mayan ruins or seascapes or whatever it is. So I better have my camera with me and do a little photography. But otherwise when I'm on my own, I do a lot of scouting trips and I have a lot of email to do always, you know, because I'm running the business, which is not just my tours, but also, you know, you're leading and Carl Grobel's leading trips in Asia. We have trips all over. We're expanding. So I've actually have, uh, I'm sometimes on scouting trips, I'm actually five or six hours doing email. <laughs> so I don't have much time to take pictures. So a lot, a lot, of times what I'll do is I'll just plan one photo shoot a day and, basically for the afternoon and just think of the sunset time, the last light, the last hour of light or so. And I like shooting through the time of uh, dusk and twilight. And so I'll just do all my work and all my scouting and appointments with tour operators or fixers or whomever and checking out new spots and this and that all day and and then just plan one photo shoot a day so i sort of it's more regimented i guess but if in a perfect word if it's if i don't have other responsibilities then i'm probably looking for photos <laughs> <laughs> well it makes sense to sort of compartmentalize that
1: uh you'd mentioned scouting a few times and i'm not sure how many of our listeners really understand what that is or what's involved uh why don't you talk a little bit about uh you know how you go about deciding on a destination and <clears throat> and what's involved with scouting, how that works.
2: Yeah, well, for me, I mean, I take great pride in offering trips. You know, we do, all of us, with our with our company, you know, is that trips that are not, some of the big companies, I don't want to, you know, name names or slam anybody, you know, they sort of plug in a famous photographer, and they just hook up with the local tour operators and go out and, and take pictures, you know, but I like to try to really plan it, really well um for photography and and i like to go to places ahead of time and check out all the the locations and decide figure out a schedule where we're maximizing our time for the best photography you know the time of day for the lighting and also is to meet the local people and you know i i always try to bring back pictures for them get to know them um so by the time we run a trip, and it even goes down to, you know, looking at all the hotels myself personally, because it's not just to get, you know, a nice hotel, but it's to try to find the best one you can get that's in the best location, as I know you're into that too. I mean, so you people, when we do have a little free time, can just walk out the door of the hotel and be very close to where there are photo ops. And so I want to, but yeah, it's always a trade-off, um, you know. Sometimes the ones downtown are in a real dive or something, but you try to find the best hotel that's in the best location, and and even restaurants. I mean, I I try to plan the places for our, for our first night's dinner and our last night's dinner, and uh, yeah. So I continually scout, and usually just one scouting trip isn't enough. Before I'll run a tour of a place, usually at least a couple, and because your first time, you're just trying to figure out where are we, what are we going to do, what are we going to shoot, all that kind of thing. A general plan. And then the second time is to try to fine tune everything and really get down to the, you know, the nuts and bolts and, you know, morning activities and afternoon activities. And, uh, and then, like I said, I do scout between trips sometimes too, just to get back and reconnect with people. Because if you're always there with a group of, you know, 10 Clients and I'm trying to help all the clients. I'm not able to really connect with the people as much, and, and they're distracted too, you know, so I do try to make the rounds every couple of years uh, to get back and see people because a lot of our stuff is cultural type of photography and, and really based on on the people. So, yeah, so the scouting is a, a big job actually. It's uh, I'm pretty busy on those trips, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I do, the scouting uh, is a lot more go 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 than the actual trip itself because I know uh-huh. that uh, you know for the trips that I lead for you and that I create for my own company that uh, you know when we do these scouting trips it's a matter of uh, you know like you say meeting the local guides, meeting the the restaurant owner, the hotel proprietor, and and doing all these different activities that the local tour operator might have an on, on agenda for us. But, uh, you know, when we come back with the group, it's not realistic to take 8 or 10 or 11 people, uh, you know, to do that amount of those amount of activities because it's just not realistic. And so we, you know, pare down right. three or four activities a day to one or two that are, you know, prime for what we're looking to do. And, uh, but I think it's really important to get <laughs> to meet the locals, the guides, the people that are you know, providing these services and letting them know what, what we're expecting, what our people expect, and they are right. more likely to provide that.
2: Right. And, and like you mentioned, photo groups need more time in each location generally than a regular tour. So they're into the mode of trying to get everybody to see everything in one day, You know, jump off the bus, take a snapshot, jump back on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we want to get a place and really stay there. And so it's a, they've, they've, you've got to just really impress on them the difference, and we have to plan it how we want to do it. And also photographers, you know, photography is is work. I mean, you're really focusing and concentrating. And if you're just out all day long without stopping, you just get burnt out. I mean, so I try to work in a little free time and breaks, and we want to be able to download our images and so forth as well.
1: Yeah, especially if you're you're talking about a 14-day trip, I mean, that's yeah. uh, that's pretty grueling to do that for 14 days and then, yeah. then you're doing image reviews at night and all that kind of stuff, so it can uh it really adds up. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Peru specifically. Now, you've done uh, you've led that trip to Peru many, many times. You've been there a lot of other times scouting. You know, what is it about Peru that keeps you coming back over and over again?
2: Well, um, you know, I, I love the culture there. It's very um, unique. The, I mean, the history of the Incas is just amazing and, and, you know, all the ruins and everything. And then on top of that, the history with the Spaniards arriving and the clash. And but for me, it's probably, I mean, the people are still, well, the modern day people, if you go to the right areas, you know, up in the Cusco and Sacred Valley areas they still live very, very traditional lives and carry on so many traditions. And uh, luckily for me, I guess, Machu Picchu is there. So people, uh, photographers always want to go. So that gives me the, the, the opportunity to keep going because I always have a demand of people that want to go there. And so since I live it there anyway, it's perfect. So I can go there and bring my groups And yeah, it's just, well, yeah, it's, it's, there's so many, there's actually so much variety of photography to do. It's not, people just think I'm going there for Machu Picchu and they end up, they always tell me afterwards, oh, I found so much more. I love the Sacred Valley and the people and everything, you know, so there's just a lot there.
1: Yeah. Like you say, I think that, uh, you know, something, uh, a site like Machu Picchu is sort of the anchor that kind of brings people in and then, when you 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 show them the people, and, and now that I understand. Now, I have not been to, to, to Peru since 1980. I was there in high school as a volunteer, and have not been back since, unfortunately. Wow. But, yeah, but I understand that there's uh, quite a food culture there now. Uh, Lima. There is, certainly is. It's quite become the food capital of South America, if not, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, Lima would be the... the- yeah, the center of it. And it's amazing because even since I've been going, you know, the last 15 years or so or less or 12 years, um, it, yeah, I've seen it really grow and really expand. And I mean, I like I, – at first when I went to Lima, I thought, well, there's, I don't really – Lima's not a real exciting city as a photographer or a tourist. You know, it's okay. But the more and more I started finding new restaurants, now I always make sure I can spend a couple days in Lima, maybe before and after the trip just to eat. Ceviche <laughs> and, and other kinds of food, you know, the seafood is just amazing there. So, yeah, I, mean, I, the best I love in the, the world. food. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah, they have a very unique cuisine, too. I mean, it really is. It's a unique cuisine, and it's becoming, I guess, I'm not a foodie like you, but I know it's becoming more and more recognized in the world. Isn't that right? I mean, you're the yeah. food guy.
1: Yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't consider myself a foodie, but uh, I have owned okay. a couple of restaurants, but they were just sort of fast food, fast casual type restaurants, but uh, uh-huh. I do like to eat, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, I, I appreciate good food, and I and I am very interested in food, and uh, so you know that I, I like to incorporate that into my trips because you know it's it's such a big part of a culture is the his, history of food especially in peru cuz i mean didn't uh, is it said that the potato originated there um, right y- they yeah. have
2: there's something like 3000 varieties of potatoes uh, in the highlands of peru it's amazing i mean what we think of a potato you know is a, a potato like a baker, or right? <laughs> yeah a baker whatever <laughs> and a sweet potato is a very specific kind of sweet potato but they have so many many varieties all in between, you know, sweet potatoes that are just a little sweet and all different colors, a lot of green and the orange and, and they do all kinds of dishes with stuffed potatoes and, and everything. It's, it's wild. Uh,
1: I, I never knew it was 3000. That's just absolutely incredible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I'm not a, I'm not a potato lover. I've always been one who doesn't, I could take it or leave it, you know? Uh, but I, I really like the potatoes there. Mm. Yeah. How about the kui? To, to, to get
1: your people to try that. You explain
2: what? Yeah. That is. They, oh, yeah. We always. Well, I have a family I know really well living way up in the highlands. When we're up in the Sacred Valley, and uh, they actually come and bring, they cook a little bit of the kui, which is guinea pig. Um, and I know that some people don't like that idea, but it's a sacred dish for the for the Andean people. You know, the descendants of the Incas, and they generally eat it at special occasions and. And it's on many restaurant menus as well. And, you know, it's – so I've had it, you know, quite a few times uh, because, like I say, the family comes down, meets us up in these ruins, and brings some kui to uh, To try to sample the first time she brought, you know, I think one for everybody in the group, and I was and nobody. <laughs> people, well, so half the people didn't even want to taste it, and the other half wanted to take a couple bites. Yeah. So I, I tell her now, just bring a little, but, but yeah, so everybody gets a chance to try it, and it's the authentic, you know, home cooked version. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's,
1: and it's fresh too cuz aren't they uh sometimes running around the house until they're ready to pick one
2: Exactly in their house <laughs> they have dirt floors in their house and the and they the koo-ee just stay stay in the house there cuz they have their little they feed them and so you, when you walk in their door they're just the queer just running running around and yeah they just right very fresh That's great Um you know the, the thing that uh when I think
1: of back about peru when i was there what 36 years ago now i can't believe that Uh Um, i can't believe i could say that i did something 36 years ago (laughs) (laughs) but uh what really uh made an impression on me was the the different uh uh, outfits the traditional uh outfits that the people wear but especially the very different hats that the women wear can you talk about that a little bit
2: yeah, that's that's uh, good that you remember that because it's so unique about Peru. You can usually tell a shot, a photograph, you know, is taken in Peru because the subject has the colorful clothing that could possibly be some other country, some other region. But in Peru, they almost all, always, you know, have a unique hat and they vary quite a bit and they vary from, you know, from town to town, from areas to areas. And there's really, well, they say... For example, especially in the Lake Titicaca area, but it's, it's out and around other areas, they wear those um, very sort of like bowlers, I guess you call them. Mm-hmm. And uh, those came from their influence from there was a big migration of people from England in I believe it was the 18th century or 19th century and just caught on as a style. You know, these, these guys that seem real important wore them, and so, but now it's the women that wear them and it's uh so it's always and they're all different and some have a style with very tall ones and some are small we try to ask the guides always about that and the locals and there doesn't seem to be there's nothing official it's just it's a style and some people it seems that the people who think they're the more important they are the wear the taller ones um but and then in other some of the the outlying villages the more rural communities they're not that type of hat at all but they're very unique uh yeah types of hats and i mean you can see where they like those people i mean they're very high altitude the sun is so harsh and also it gets cold you know so you have the dual purpose of keeping your head warm and and blocking the sun you know i think is why they wear some kind of hat and they've just evolved it into a big fashion statement
1: yeah and and the hats uh uh at least by you know Western standards, seem very strange, but uh, they're just beautiful and the colors, and they're so unique, and they're flat ones, and like you say, the bowler, you know, just like a regular derby type hats. Derby. Uh, right. I just uh, that really made an impression on me.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's like I say, it's the real expression for each person is the the hat they wear. Yeah. Uh, what
1: are some of the the non photographic highlights of Peru that you would recommend
2: for people well you um already i think took my what would be be my number one was the food Mm. you know i mean because it's just getting better and better all the time and so many different you know kind of unique dishes and just different takes on dishes we know um and then beyond that i mean you have you know shopping with the with the artists and you know the handicrafts and the beautiful fabrics they weave, and uh, and I mean to me, just to meeting the people, especially the rural people. If you can get out into places like the Sacred Valley, that's just the outside of Cusco City, where these people live in all these villages, and they come down to the markets and they If you take the time to really just meet them, they're so sweet and genuine. You know, it's amazing, and, and just in general, the people are are just so nice everywhere. Are there certain market days in each town? Yeah, definitely. Um, that they, they, they do that. Um, so the, the certain towns in the Sacred Valley, Sunday is a real big market day. It's not quite like say for instance Guatemala. You know, we go to different villages for different market days during the week. Or in Oaxaca, Mexico, same way. Um, in Peru, it seems like Sunday is the day. So we hit a couple of markets on Sunday in the Sacred Valley, but definitely some really good markets and then excuse me then in Cusco um, every day there's a big market so that's nice.
1: I'm sure I know the answer to this question but uh, do you make an effort to get yourself and your people into the homes of the locals to
2: see how they live and work? Oh absolutely yeah and uh, you know that's part of the scouting ties back to the scouting like you said and and I have the the opportunity to be able to travel back to places. So I always bring pictures for people. And I've been doing that ever, you know, since the film days, I would bring a point and shoot and shoot, shoot. Uh, I was shooting slide film in my big camera. And so I would shoot print film in a, in a point and shoot. And I take one for me and, you know, and then one for them. And then I go and get it developed at the one hour photo and, and come back and bring them photos. And, and uh, so meanwhile, I've gotten to know people in all these places. And that's why a big reason I go back on scouting trips, like I said um so that we do go you know i meet people say girls that are vendors that their families send out to sell they like guatemala comes to mind because we visit quite a few homes there and i get to know the vendors and then sooner or later you know i get invited to their homes and then i get to know the whole family and then we bring our groups and it's good for them and good for us because of course they try to sell all their you know their handicrafts their weavings particularly and um and our people just Really love going into people's homes and really seeing how they live and and you know people's homes not apart from what other tour groups go to, but you know they're the real life, yeah. And well, sometimes like you say, the work too, because they're like some of the families we go to in one village in Guatemala. They actually their main source of it, income are there. What they do is they grow their farmers, you know, and they grow onions and other vegetables and, you know, we'll come there and they're busy with all their onions, getting them ready to take to market and everything. So, yeah, we get a a real look into their lives.
1: Uh, You know, I I like this idea of of talking to the vendors at markets and uh, sounds like, especially in Guatemala, that they're pretty open to, uh, you know, once they feel comfortable with you, I'm sure, uh, to invite you back to their homes, uh, That. I was going to ask, you know, what's what's a good approach for trying to get into people's homes? Because I know that, you know, on scouting trips, oftentimes the tour operator will will set that up for us. But what about when you're on your own? How are you uh, <clears throat> making that happen? Are you just sometimes knocking on doors? I know in Cuba, <laughs> it, you know, in Cuba, it's you just walk in the you know the front sort of main you know entranceway to a big building and inevitably someone's going to invite you in the back and you know and offer you a beer or something so how do you do that
2: yeah well it's funny because when you started talking about that that popped into my head was Cuba because that I and I was just there for a few trips this year I mean there it's very easy anybody can do it if you just slow down and and smile at people you know they're going to invite you into their homes yeah so it's a no-brainer there uh in Havana especially and, and Trinidad, and really everywhere, uh, I think. Other places, you know, if you're just an independent traveler and you're going there one time, I mean, it's a little bit more difficult. I mean, I've I've developed these relationships over time, and, um, you know, it's not as some of the cultures, I mean, they're not as readily just to invite some stranger directly into their homes right away, you know, so I don't know. I think it takes a little time, but if you're in a, say you're in a village for a little bit, longer than normal then you can start to meet people you know the far i think the more rural type of areas you know the more likely people invite in your homes but it kind of varies from place to place and i and i think that's why it's a good idea to
1: think about uh seeing people in their workplace because they're probably more likely to uh have you into you know their the workshop or you you know certainly um you know if i'm in rome or in, in madrid or somewhere and i walk by a, uh, an instrument maker's shop, I'm definitely going to stop in and show an interest and start a conversation with the person. And, uh, you know, it almost 100% of the time leads to some great photographs. And then I say, would you mind if I brought a group back next year, if, you know, if I happen to be on a scouting trip? And, uh, you know, way often, more often than not, they'll be very
2: open to that. Yeah, exactly, and when workshops are definitely, and we go to a lot of workshops. Yeah, same exact thing. And Like you say, it that's a little easier because it's not actually to bring you to their house. Oh, right. um, the more uh, urban kind of place, it's more. I think that's more realistic is to get into people's workplaces, and then the more you're out in the rural areas, if you have a little t- more time, you can get to know people and actually see their homes.
1: Yeah, and we uh, we do these. Uh like in Cambodia do these tuk-tuk adventures where we kind of just, I hire tuk-tuks for everyone and we go out and just kind of uh, peruse the, the the hinterlands and pull over when we see a guy pounding out horseshoes or, you know, making sticky rice or whatever it is. And uh, they're, they're really open to
2: to having us, especially if you're
1: buying things from them, of course.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that that's understandable that, you know, people that do have, things they would like to sell to you helps that's, that sounds like a great idea yeah we go out that's just it the farther you can get off the beaten track i think you'll find people that are just so open you know and they and they get a kick out of it because here are these international tourists <laughs> i mean their lives are fairly routine and mundane i think so you, you know for them it's kind of fun too you know definitely and they're proud
1: of what they do and they want to show their work off which is understandable yes um do you have any tips for staying healthy on the road? Um, yeah, are you are you do, do you get sick much, or you kind of have an iron stomach with regards to <laughs> the intestinal stuff, or
2: how, how do you? Well, think? you know, yeah, years ago, over the years, I should say, I guess, um, you know, I got sick several times in in different countries in my travels. I think maybe I've developed a better stomach since I've had had the bugs. I also think, well, in longer ago, you know, you didn't have bottled water. Everywhere, and now you—everywhere I go, you know, you can always get bottled water. And so I even—I do use it for brushing my teeth. I'm not sure if that's really necessary, but I just figure why not? You know, I don't use too much. And uh, so, for whatever reason, you know, I got sick several times in my life in different countries. I mean, the really bad kind of thing where you're just laid up with a fever, and you know, uh, but knocking on wood here. I haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't really had anything to, you know, major for a while. I mean, so, and my attitude is a little bit, you know, people have, certainly have the theory, don't eat those uh, uncooked vegetables that, that you have to peel and that kind of thing. Really? I, I don't know. I, I still, I eat salads everywhere I travel. Um, Me too. I, I sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sort of started thinking, you know, you don't know where when one person and one person will get sick in the group and we all eat the same thing. And I think it also you know what I think is it really has partly just to do with your how worn down you are, stress, fatigue, that kind of thing. I find I get sick as much as maybe it's not you know, maybe we're being exposed to some of these bugs but somebody just happens to be susceptible at that moment and I'm not I, I can't predict which food it is or whatever gives you the stomach bug. So I well, you know, within reason, I I, I eat most things. Yeah, and I, I
1: I am a firm believer that you can you know wash your hands too much, use too much hand sanitizer, and you know if you don't expose yourself to these organisms, then every time yeah. you are exposed, you're going to get
2: sick. And that's so a good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm not that freaky in about yeah. Yeah, I'm not freaky about doing all this hand sanitizer stuff. I mean, sure. Sometimes, but Mm. yeah. Yeah. So I don't get too, I just try to keep a good attitude and keep going and, you know, it works for me. Yeah.
1: You know, someone who travels as much as you do, can you give us uh, a few packing tips that other folks might not know about?
2: Packing tips. I think, uh, well, one thing that comes to my mind because people will be asking me is I find I I like to bring my carry-on items in two separate carry-ons, so neither one is very big uh, because sometimes if you have one kind of roller bag that's pretty good size, that that legally fits within the, the luggage bin... But then you get on a smaller plane and it won't. And they'll usually, hopefully they'll take pretty good care of it if they gate check it, you know, take it down just at the gate on the jetway or wherever. Um, But so I, but I like to have, I have a backpack. and Plus I like to have, then I have a small item I can put under my seat for the things that I want during the course of the flight. So that's my way. But I find that everybody you talk to has a different, uh, you know, packing method. And obviously I, I always would recommend to try to go reasonably light. You know, when I was first, Out traveling as a serious photographer, I brought so much gear with me, and then I realized it was all sitting in the hotel all the time. And whenever I was out on a you know shooting, and then there would be one time I might want one specific lens or flash or flash uh, remote thing or something, and but you know I never had it with me, and and I started realizing just as far as photo gear, I mean I keep getting less and less is better for me and just work with what you got and some shots maybe you're not going to get, but, um, so I don't, I'm not freaky about traveling super light, but I just, you know, if you get travel, bring too much, lug too much gear along, you know, that's not good for me. And I don't know, as far as packing tips, if you mean what you bring to, I mean, one thing I always like to have, that I can bring almost everywhere is a little disposable, those disposable ponchos you can get for a dollar or two and a little plastic case that they can fit in a camera bag and a little day pack in, in your pocket even. Um, cause I've been, after I got stuck out in the rain a couple of times far away from everything, I, I learned that lesson. So
1: yeah that's I always a bring tip.
2: a couple of the, I can bring a couple of those.
1: Yeah, that's a good tip. Is, is there anything that you bring on the road as a reminder of home or good luck or
2: anything like that? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, well, photos of my kids—I okay. always have those. Uh, yeah, and uh, I don't know about good luck or anything. You know, I mean, I, other things as far as just things to 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 bring along. I, also, another thing I uh, fairly recently really discovered I like are my noise canceling earbuds. You know, I a, a while back I got some noise canceling headphones. That's one more bigger thing to put in your carry-on which is always a little heavy and a little it's always nicer, or smaller then i discovered that you can get those noise cancelling earbuds if for flights you know you just don't realize how loud those airplanes are that you're subjected to that noise for hours and hours so i love plugging my uh, noise cancelling earbuds my bows what like
1: yeah yeah you know for me uh something that i bring about 90 percent of the time which is kind of funny is slippers oh yeah i like to have my slippers and so <laughs> yeah i've got these uh, very small ones uh, that uh, pack up very nicely actually i got them in romania on our romania trip and uh and i just like to have the, it just kind of reminds me of you know of home even though i don't really have a home but uh, you know, it makes me feel like wherever I am is home, which
2: is kind of that's funny, kind of silly. I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> do you wear those on the plane on the flights too? Oh no, no, not quite. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because I've thought about that. Actually, I take off on the long flights. You know, you take off your shoes, or at least I do, usually to be comfortable. But then you want to uh, get up and go to the restroom, and you've got to dig down and find your shoes. Get moved yeah. all around, and getting them back on in that tight little space. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Slippers would be good for a flight. Oh, yeah. You know,
1: something that I'm really interested in and in getting tips uh, from people like yourself is uh, how do you minimize jet lag?
2: Yeah, I'm not probably the best expert. I, I would say uh, lots of caffeine and lots of alcohol. i missed just <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to see if you'd react. <laughs> I did. No, actually, that's what all the experts say. Avoid, you know. Exactly. But I, but I'm not freaky about it. I like to have a drink or two. If it's a long flight. Hey, give me a, you know, second drink. But um, you know, one thing for me is that uh, since I travel in Latin America, I'm mostly traveling north south,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I don't go more than three time zones away ever. So you still get jet lag. Just, just the t- I don't know. It's I think even changing going from northern to southern hemisphere. I think it messes with your body a little. Um, so I don't have great answers except for, in my case, I like to try to, I go ahead of my groups usually, you know, and get to a place just for jet lag, for getting on the ground. And, and it takes me usually a couple of days just to feel like I'm really there, you know, after when you fly somewhere far away. And, uh, so that gives me the opportunity to get adjusted anyway, but I don't travel like you halfway around the world all the time for many, many years. I did it years and years ago and I remember being, you know, whipped for a couple days for sure. But, but I, but I don't change the time zones extremely. Like, so I don't have to deal with it in that way.
1: Yeah. And I could see where that's a benefit just traveling North and South and only going maybe two or three time zones, East or West. Um, but yeah, I do travel halfway around the world for some of the destinations that I go to. And, you know, my tips, if, uh, it, probably obvious is I try to combine trips. So, you know, I just got back from Morocco and the Baltics, and you know, I'm not going to fly back in between those trips. But I'll try to plan them so I could stay over there for a month, month and a half, or even two or three at a time. Uh, you know, the typical. I set my watch to the destination time zone right when I get on the airplane. Try to drink a lot of yeah. water. Yeah, you know, things like I that. that. Uh, but. One of my tips for actually being in the destination, and I do also try to get there three, four days in advance because uh, you know, I, I, not only do I want to catch up on the jet lag, but you know, obviously we're confirming, you know, yeah, finish, scouting, you know, reservations <laughs> and yeah. things when we're for our groups when they're coming over for scouting.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, one thing you talked about the noise canceling headphones is what I use as a uh, a sound machine when I'm sleeping uh, when I'm when I'm in the hotel and it's actually not a separate sound machine it's just an app on my iphone called right. ambience and it's just a white noise and it drowns out almost everything whether it's street noise from outside it's uh you know the cock crowing or, or you know a, a disco down the way whatever it is it drowns out that noise and uh so now i have trouble sleeping in complete silence cuz any little <laughs>
2: noise startles me <laughs> That's, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that, that's a good idea, and a lot of people are doing that nowadays. You know, I haven't actually done that much. I always have earplugs with me to s- stick into my ears if I start hearing something, but those are a little, little uncomfortable sometimes, it kind of bugs you a little.
1: Yeah, and I'll use both. Uh, so I use the foam ear, ear earbuds and uh, earplugs, yeah. and then I'll have the sound machine going. I plug my iPhone in so I don't have to worry about it you know, running out of juice. Plug it in and just get that, that white noise going, and uh, man... I don't sleep like a baby, but uh, you know, I sleep a lot better than I normally would. So uh-huh. um, so um, you talked a little bit about uh, photographing the people in Peru, uh, and you mentioned uh, sometimes you have to give a little bit of a tip. Is that pretty standard almost everywhere there or just case by case?
2: Yeah, in Peru, you know, I've always been one to try to avoid just handing money to people for photos because, in general, you know, I think it's a fine line between that and just creating people begging for money, you know, or just give me money for photos. Uh, I mean, you know, like for example, in Cuba, you know, more and more they're just everybody asks for money if they point a camera anywhere near them. Um, So I I try to avoid, but in Peru, it's just it's like they have a union, and and uh, you have a lot of people that they're wearing their you know, their real clothes they wear from their villages, but they come down into the tourist areas like around Cusco and other places, markets, and they're sort of models. I mean, that's what they do, and they want tips. And even the average person, if they're from those villages and they know they have traditional dress on, they've been around and they know that that everybody asks for one soul, which is about thirty cents. So it's it's fairly you know small. I mean, it, even when you give out a lot of them during the day, it's really not much money. Um, And there, like I say, in Peru is one exception where I just know if you have somebody, you just have to give it until you get really off the beaten track and they're just not used to tourists. Then they don't ask. And I certainly don't go out of my way to try to start the, the habit in those places. But yeah, but in the tourist areas, it's I just if you want to get the shots, you just accept it. It's already, they've already been, you know, quote ruined unquote, or whatever. I mean, they, they're, they're, you know, they, if you don't pay, give them a soul for a photo that five or one minute later, the next person walking by is going to give them a soul. Uh, so anyway, yeah. So I, that's just kind of the standard way around the tourist areas for the tra- traditional people.
1: Yeah, and I, and and I'm sure you you know you set up your people for that's what to expect, and they exactly. know, and uh, you know if, if someone's a street performer, they're there to get tips. I think it's only right that we should tip them. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't go down the street just handing out money. Which you know at times I've I've had people on trips that will do that, and they'll just you know they take a picture yeah. and they walk up to someone and give them money, and I and I say oh that's. You know, probably not a good thing to do. Uh, you know, that person wasn't asking for money. They're just sitting in the doorway. And, uh, yeah. you know, they just they get desensitized. And, you know, all of a sudden you've got little kids.
2: Now every time someone takes a picture, they they got a hand out. Everybody's got their hands out, right. Mm-hmm. And then you end up getting pictures. It would be a great shot if it wasn't for their hands sticking out, you know. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and, no, I, I hold hard. I really try – to, and in my case, even in Peru, I rarely give the the coins because they know me in some of these places now, and I give them pictures and that's such a better tip, you know, even in other places you know you, you give a kid a coin and then you pass him again five minutes later and you see him chopping on candy you know yeah. so it's just a waste and whereas I mean, you give them pictures, and I'll walk by an hour later, and they're still looking at those pictures, pointing at it, and talking about it, showing their friends. And you know, they'll have them in their family for years. So it's it's a much better gift to give, and 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 you know, it creates a trust. You know, so it's, it works for for them, and it works for for me and my my clients as well. You know, so
1: and I think it I think it gives them a reason to be photographed too. It's like, okay, some people are yeah. bringing back pictures, and so I can see the result. But uh, yeah, I encourage people to do that as well. And I say that it's an an inexpensive, lightweight, very meaningful gift because some of these people don't even have mirrors in their homes, uh, let alone pictures of themselves. And so I think that's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, One thing that I do with my groups before a trip, you know, when we're kind of doing our meet and greet that first evening is I ask everyone to to have a theme in mind for the trip. So it could be anything from hands to people at work to the color red, whatever it is. Uh, is there any particular themes that you keep in mind? Maybe that you have an ongoing theme or do you do that for
2: yourself? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah. I, uh, one, of my, one theme is uh, corn. 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 (laughs) Because, you know, especially, well, the people, the the Mayan people, and I think really all the, the indigenous groups from Mexico call themselves the people of the corn, you know, because they believe that they were actually the god or their great creator made them out of corn and corn is their complete staple diet i mean from the from the tortillas they have everything in you know to the tamales and the pozole and all, all the food i mean corn is is everything for them and and so i like to get shots with corn you know be it just some corn on somewhere sitting somewhere or people with corn in their hands or people eating corn and in peru too it's uh like we mentioned potatoes are big up in, in the real high country but corn is still a huge staple there and so and when we get we go at the time of year when they're actually harvesting corn so we get opportunities for corn shots so it's kind of funny i, I tell my client my my participants say, you know, corn, corn, and <laughs> and, and and one other uh, theme is virgins. Wow! And, and I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I about, explain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's the in Mexico, the Virgin of Guadalupe oh, okay. is uh, the patron saint of the country, and she, it's so she's so important. You know, of course, every church has a statue of the Virgin, and every, I mean, almost every taxi driver has a little Virgin hanging from his rear-view mirror and so many homes they have little statues little depictions of the virgin of Guadalupe. Um, so i i've started making a collection so i, I tell people on my trips oh i have a collection of virgins and so they get think it's funny so i talking uh, but about anyway, the virgin have, not virgins <laughs> right 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 virgin shot, vir, photographs of the virgin yeah i should <laughs> that's what i should say i have a virgin collection i say I but uh, anyway yes yeah, so, so i have i need to come compile that actually better because I've taken so many hundreds and hundreds and I have them in a couple of different folders, but yeah. And I have other ones, you know, yeah, I could go on and on, but, uh, yeah, sleeping Man. So. what's Go up? Ahead. Oh, sleeping man, I call it. And it's just where not to get somebody who's down and out and kind of pathetic sleeping on the street, but more people that you catch, for example, in markets, for example, people are getting up before dawn to, to, get their products into the market and get set up or going to get their produce or whatever it is so you're you know you're going through there in the middle of the day and you find people just sound asleep on top of their vegetables or something and so i have sort of just slowly i'm not really searching it out but when i soon as i see it like okay there's a sleeping person you know and so sooner or later i'll have a a a show just of sleeping people sleeping virgins yeah, yeah, that's a big corn. Bridges. The <laughs> corn. Yeah, there's there you go. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: I, w- the one thing that I have sort of ongoing is people reading newspapers. Ah, and I started that on our uh Nepal Bhutan tour that I did <laughs> uh led for you guys. And I especially in Kathmandu just found that I was getting a lot of photographs of people reading newspapers. And so that's sort of been my ongoing theme that I'm always looking for. But I I, I recommend that people have a theme in mind and then we all talk about it. And then it's uncanny how uh, often everyone will see everyone else's theme from then on. (laughs) That's a good
2: idea. You know, I don't actively pursue that with my groups, but uh, that's a note I'll take, themes. (laughs) Um, I I remember one trip so many years ago. It was when when I did a little two-day trip down Ensenada, Tecate, and I had a guy who was in a photo class or something, and and they had to do the color red or yellow, I forget. Mm -hmm. So he was just telling the people in the group when we were in the bus, you know, oh, yeah, I've got to find, you know, yellow. Next thing you know, everywhere he went, everybody was screaming, yellow, yellow.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, once you know what you're looking for, you'll see it almost everywhere. Yeah. Well, as we wind things down, I wanted to ask you, do you have uh, any special tips you can provide for our listeners, any apps or software, books, classes, gear, anything that you've been uh, using lately or discovered lately that you think our listeners might help with their travel photography?
2: That's that's a tougher one, you know. I'm not because I'm not a techie guy, and I kind of my uh, sort of way of doing things is that I use I sort of tend to use the same equipment and just know my equipment so well that I don't even have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I'm not. I think you know, I'm not a real big techie guy as far as you know. Even apps, I have. I you know, I load the ones I really need on my phone for certain things, but I'm not. And I do use my iPhone to, to shoot with. You know, but I haven't learned the all the apps for that. Um, so for me, my theory is more. I, I like you mentioned you use the same model, and I just get the new version of the model. You know, I use a Canon Five D, and I've you know used it for so long. I'm just waiting for the Mark IV to finally come out. But I like the fact that I instinctively just move my buttons around and don't have to ever even think about my gear and. um So I'm not, you know, when you mentioned, I think you said books. I mean, I I always bring a guidebook on trips and that's if you're going on a photo tour, then somebody else is handling most of it for you. But if you're going, certainly going independently, it's still old school. I know you can find a lot of things online, but I like, I like the old fashioned guidebook and I can just throw it in my bag and read it whenever I want to. But yeah, I don't I'm not such a good source for apps. Well, I think, uh, you know, um, just the idea
1: of getting to know your gear is a very, very important tip because they get so many people that, uh, you know, buy a camera a week or two before a big trip and then they read yeah. the manual on the flight over. and If at all. You know, yeah, if they do that. <laughs> and they brag about it and, uh, you know, and then you're on this once in a lifetime trip that cost you thousands of dollars and you're you know, trying to learn your gear on the trip, which I, I think is kind of silly. So I really encourage people to, to buy gear very well in advance of a trip. Use yeah. it. Get to know it intimately so that when you're on that trip, it's a part of you. And yeah, all absolutely. All you have to do is you know, notice the photo
2: opportunities and point and shoot. Right. And I, I see people that are so caught up. In, you know, even reading the manual can be dangerous if you, if you read all 350 pages of it and learn how to do every single little function. Mm-hmm. They're continually talking about all these functions are changing. Then they're trying to take shots and it's not coming out at all. They're saying, Jim, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, man, we got to go into your menu and figure out every function you changed and, yeah, reset. you know, reset. Yeah, reset <laughs> it. And, and then, I mean, it, you know yeah i see that so much they get so caught up in the gear that it just paralyzes it can paralyze you you know and even the equipment too they're lugging around huge bags and stuff but then when it comes time to shoot they're not ready and so i'm more of a minimalist and and just know what, what you have as Bob Dylan said, know your song well before you start singing. And, <laughs> and that's what I think.
1: Yeah, and I think that people get caught up uh, too much in the settings, too. And they start, you know, they take a class. or yes. they, you know, Even we talk about what aperture is and depth of field and these concepts. And then they get so caught up in those concepts that they mm-hmm. – they miss out on the photo opportunities because they're just fumbling around. You know, what did he say? How do, you know, how do I calculate? What's right. the exposure triangle? And that opportunity has gone. You know, unless exactly. you're sitting there doing a tabletop
2: you know, plate of food or a, a landscape. Right. But you know what I mean, Right. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I, I find it funny that, that people will turn and ask me questions right when we're having like, look at this is the moment the sun just bursts through a little hole in the clouds, and you've got some guy, you know, in the fields, you know, doing something amazing. You've got the light, the the magic moment, and then they're turning to me and saying, "Well, do you think?" They're asking me technical questions on their camera. I'm saying, "Why don't we talk about this in five minutes, Yeah. yeah. and let's get the shot?" You know, but, oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, turn that camera into a point and shoot get all your settings right for whatever those conditions are. And now all you have to do is concentrate on recognizing the photo opportunity and capturing it. Right. That's all you got to do. Well, um, it's been a pleasure, Jim. You know, do you have any upcoming tours, classes, speaking engagements that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Yeah, I don't have, you know, I just, uh, gave a couple of, of, uh, talks, but I don't have anything on the schedule for any appearances or talks that I can think of, but and as far as tours, you know, I we definitely we always have a big schedule. I think we have more than twenty on the schedule right now on our website. So, you know, the best resources that it's Jim Klein Phototours.com. And you can actually go to jimclein.com, Jim Klein with a C, and it will direct you there. And uh, for the whole list of tours, because it's not just me, I only lead about a third or a quarter of our trips. And, you know, we have, uh, I mean, you have a trip or two coming up very shortly. I'm not sure when this will air, so that may, that may not be news anymore. But And then I've got trips, you know, I, I have trips to Oaxaca for Day of the Dead, to Guatemala, to Peru, and to Cuba, and also other parts of Mexico, such as Chiapas and Aja, California. So I think just checking the website is the best way to go.
1: Great. And we'll put that uh, those links in the show notes for sure. Uh, do you want okay. to talk a little bit about uh, any of your social media
2: handles that you want to let people know of how to connect with you on, on social yeah, media? Yeah, and I'm, once again, a fairly low tech, so the only thing I do is Facebook. Uh, and we have I have my Jim Klein, you know, if you look at my name, on Facebook as well, as I'm sure you could post that too. We will. So there are more than one Jim Kleins out there, uh, but it's this picture of me standing there with my camera. And uh, Jim and Jim Klein Photo Tours also has a, a Facebook page, and you know we. So that's a good uh, resource because we announce when we have some spaces opening up on trips or when, when a new trip is released, and, and so forth. We'll make sure that we put uh, all those links in the show notes. Well,
1: thanks a lot, Jim. I appreciate your being a guest on the show. Thank you, Ralph. Good to talk to you. Haven't talked to you for a while. It's been a while. We gotta we gotta yeah. get in touch more often. That's right.